Thank you for listening to Value-Based Care Insights, a podcast by Lumina Health Partners. In this series, host Daniel J. Marino, managing partner of Lumina, talks to top experts and thought leaders in healthcare to help you navigate on the journey to value-based care in the ever-changing landscape of the industry. The goal of this series is to bring you disruptive success strategies by leveraging Lumina's experiences, stories, and insights from working with health professionals and organizations across the country. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to invite you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think about the episode and any questions that are top of mind. Now let's get started. Hello, I'm Dan Marino. Welcome to another edition of Value-Based Care Insights. Today, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the changing primary care model and some of the influences that we're starting to see or really have started to see over the last 18 to 24 months that have impacted primary care services, the primary care physicians, physicians that have been employed by large health systems. There's been a lot of influences that has really changed the primary care model. And I think for the most part, it's been positive for patients, but it is definitely changing the way both health system leaders need to think about primary care, as well as then the primary care physician themselves really need to focus on their own survival. So as an example, there's a whole new technology that has emerged and has incorporated into the practice setting and really talking about telehealth. You know, I can remember when COVID first took off and, you know, we went to a a real remote environment of medical care delivery. Most organizations went from, you know, seeing telehealth at maybe three, four, 5% of their patient visits almost overnight up to 50, 60, 70%. Well, that has really changed the primary care model a lot to the point where we're, we're almost seeing two types of models that are out there. One that is very much focused on what we're calling convenience-based primary care, where if a, a patient wants to talk to a primary care physician, I mean, frankly, you could just hit a button and be connected with a primary care physician remotely. And then the second model is, is the continued traditional model of primary care, where, you know, again, you're going to make your appointment, you're going to see your primary care physician, but even that has changed quite a bit in terms of where the services are being performed and and maybe even the primary care employment status as well. I'm really pleased today to be joined by my colleague, Dr. George Maisel. George is a recognized expert around the country in helping physicians, medical groups, health systems, and working through and creating efficiencies for medical groups, as well as clinically integrated networks and so forth. Done a tremendous amount of work with groups around the country on helping to build strategies that really help their financial performance. George, welcome. Thank you, Dan. So, George, is... is as I was thinking about this today, and and even in my own personal situation, I, I've had a, a couple of instances where I've had to contact a primary care physician. And although I, I've got a, a very long-standing relationship with my primary care physician, I found it almost more convenient to um, 
to engage a, a physician through ZocDoc, for instance, and to get a, a quick response to my primary care needs. How proficient are you seeing this across the country? And I guess second to that is, you know, what are your thoughts on, on how that's really impacting the primary care practice today? Well, I think as a recovering primary care physician, all I can say is it's really tough to be a primary care physician out there in today's world. There's so many competing priorities um, that you have to keep remembering to put the patient at the center, and it's difficult. Um, to your points, one of the major impacts on primary care across the country has been employment, and that's happened over the last several years, so it's not really anything new, except it's one, it's accelerating, and two, it was traditionally very hospital-focused employment, but we've seen more recently um, other folks such as uh, venture capital and insurers are really doing more employment than even hospitals. So that changes the model at the primary care practice. And so that access point now becomes under the purview of the organization or, or corporatization and not always totally the primary care's um, discretion. So I think the access, I've seen it and a little bit anecdotal here, but it's gotten more challenging under that model because again, it's very corporatized and they've fallen under that whole um, process of, of the hospital or even outpatient. Now, on the other side, as you alluded to, there's a whole other subset of both primary care physicians and organizations that have taken advantage of that problem and created instant access across the country, which creates a whole other issue in that if you're a primary care physician, you're now competing for your own patients in your marketplace across the country because they can access primary care 24 uh, seven telephonically. So that puts you in a whole different spot. So you have that issue of now you're employed, so you have less control. The hospitals, quite frankly, and we can talk more about this, have really struggled with that employment model, especially post COVID where they had some major financial challenges and they've really not treated the primary care physicians at the level I think some of them want to be treated and deserve to be treated. So we're, we're, we're starting to see some discord in that relationship. Again, it's, it's situational and it's not uniform, but I'm starting to see some of that. So I think there's a lot of push and pull on primary care physicians to do a great job with patients while still obviously being fairly compensated and obviously being in a position where they can have a, a reasonable work-life balance and uh, not be subject to burnout and all the other things that are going on. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think one of the points that you've touched on is in the primary care employment model, managing access has always been a challenge. And, and in some health systems and many health systems, I think that's actually been a weakness or an area of vulnerability with patients and, and with really growing the network. And it seems to me that a lot of these external organizations, you know, folks that have been maybe private equity that is invested in, say, a Village MD or a, you know, commercial carrier like United Healthcare that has employed, you know, primary care physicians, you're hearing a lot about that. They are, are really capitalizing on that weakness of access. And they're using that to their advantage, right? I mean, you know, you you had mentioned it, and it's it's a tough balancing act because in some cases, you know, it's a work-life balance for the physicians that have become employed, but in the same respect, you know, primary care is a pretty strong business, right? And it impacts a lot as it relates to that health system. Yeah, 
I mean, absolutely true. And what's happening and happens is a lot of those models outside of the hospital are moving faster to value-based care. So the contracts are now supporting more efficient care, keeping the patients out of the hospital, rewarding that access at the financial level by keeping patients satisfied, keeping the attribution models strong so they're connected, stickiness, and also hopefully avoiding ER visits by being you know, available 24-7 telephonically or, or virtually or however you name it. So uh, along with those external models that the payment system has also aligned much more so outside of the hospital. Again, we're generalizing, so it's not always true, but in general, I think that's true. So those two things fit together in a way that makes sense for these external organizations or insurers. So it seems to me, as the the C-suite of organizations are thinking about how they need to respond to this, they really need to think about it in two ways, right? They need to think about how you maintain that connection with the patient and managing the access and, and frankly, building this convenient-based primary care component while still, you know, growing their traditional focus of primary care. I think without thinking about both of those within their primary care setting, it's certainly going to impact their financials. And in some cases, I think without that transformation, Everything from physician compensation is going to be impacted. Their strategic partnerships are going to be impacted. I think even you know the success of the specialists within the network are going to be impacted. Yeah, I think that's all true. One of the things that probably is worth mentioning in, into all that, which is really true, is that balance point at the hospital level between the employed and the independent physicians. Um, they need both to survive. They, they cannot survive on independent or employed alone. And again, particularly on the specialty side where they can't possibly employ everybody and and probably shouldn't, they need to figure out a good balance on how they can treat their employed physicians well at the primary care level to help support their specialists, but also their independent physicians, either at the employed uh, specialist or or primary care level. So um, all that's true. And they got to start thinking differently. A lot of hospitals are still trying to manage physicians as employees in a traditional sense. I've been around long enough to see it not work several times over the last several decades. They have to treat professional employees a little bit differently. And to that, you know, the autonomy, the incentive, the comp models, all those things need to be set up so that the values are aligned and the incentives are aligned. And again, hospitals are still in many cases playing catch up to do that. I agree. So George, what do you think the impact is, you know, related to what we're talking about here with these new primary care models? What do you think the impact is on these value-based care contracts? I think it's potentially positive. You know, one of the things that has to happen is the contracts, the incentive plan, and the employment models all have to move in the same direction at the same speed, more or less. If you get the contracts and the incentive model way out front of the, you know, the incentive package and employment, they don't work. If you do the other way around, it doesn't work. So you have to move them all in the same direction so that physicians and the health system are rewarded for doing the right thing. And the way that reward happens is by the contracts that are set up based on outcomes and processes of care and good financial stewardship. Um, so all those things need to be set up so the physicians are incentivized 
to do the right thing, as is the hospital and payer. So everybody's rowing in that same direction. And again, that's the challenges to get that all to happen at the same time. And hospitals, some are, are way ahead, but many are, are still you know, in that conflicted model because they're still thinking as the hospital as a cash revenue resource. And again, when you really move way down the managed care and value-based chain, it becomes a cost center. And so they're understandably ambivalent about limiting the number of admissions, which is what you tend to do in some of these value-based contracts. Again, unnecessary admissions, I wanna be clear about that, or ones that can be safely handled in the outpatient space. But hospitals are in that conflicted model where they're really trying to still serve two masters, and that's very difficult. Well, yeah, and I mean, we still see a lot of this where the compensation models are very much RBU-based and reward production, right? Whereas if organizations, many of the organizations may have 20, 30% of their revenues tied to some type of a, a value-based care component, which, you know, in some cases, if it, you know, over utilization is, is going to hurt the performance of that contract. So I, I absolutely agree. I think you need to have all three of those areas aligned. You need to have the right level of reimbursement that aligns with the compensation that then rewards the appropriate level of performance. And it is a balancing act, right? Because as you mentioned, I mean, there's still a lot of very fee-for-service rich contracted organizations out there but as we start to move into more value-based care, as we start to assume levels of risk, that alignment really becomes critical. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the challenge. It really is still very localized and geographic. And so we still have the, the proverbial foot in both canoes and two separate canoes, which makes it tough. But I think moving quickly to the new models is probably in everybody's advantage, either staying as long as you can safely, comfortably in the old model, but when you're ready to go, you got to go. But you have to spend the time to learn to make sure you can do it successfully before you just jump right in. Uh, again, as I, I said earlier, I'm old enough to remember when everybody jumped into what at that time were capitated contracts without the most inkling of knowledge of what that meant and without any data, and frankly, failed miserably. And again, the patients sometimes get caught in the middle of this with either overutilization or underutilization. And again, that's not good for anybody. So there's a lot of moving parts here, obviously. It takes a certain amount of experience and expertise to, to get in a position to win for everybody, including the patients. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I had an interesting conversation a couple of weeks back with a uh, president of a, of a large medical group. He was a, a physician and in his particular market he's seeing some of these non-traditional, non-health system, let's say, primary care entities starting to emerge. And one in particular that was funded by a private equity group, had aligned with the pharmaceutical group and was, you know, focusing on this convenience-based primary care and was really starting to connect with patients. And one of the things that he was particularly concerned about was how attribution of the primary care patients were going to be recalculated. For this particular health system, you know, they, they were focused on risk, they were focused on creating, you know, different cohorts of, of patients. And he felt very comfortable that his team could manage the high-risk, complicated patients and manage them well through the primary care setting and with the specialists, but it's expensive. 
And for this particular health system, you know, they had somewhere in the range of about 80,000 covered lives, attributed lives. But really what was keeping him up late at night were these large amount of low-risk patients that, you know, again, they were receiving PMPM on. There's not a lot of work, not a lot of utilization that's going to occur. That offsets the high risk, right? What he was concerned about was when you have these other external influences, they're going to siphon off these low-risk patients, and then the complicated patients are going to be left with the health system. And he's worried about whether he's really going to be able to make it in the long term. What's your thoughts on that? Is that a viable concern? Are you seeing that across the country? Yeah, I think that's a very viable concern. And and it brings up sort of two really important points. The first one you sort of alluded to, many of these hospital and hospital systems have set up their financial models to be inpatient focused where they, where they, that's where they really, they make their, their revenue. That's where they make their contribution margin. Some now have shifted even in the outpatient space, but that's still an outpatient model based on hospital charges for diagnostics and, and things like that. So in these models, if, if the, these other private equity groups have now siphoning off the well patients or the patients that are not that sick and don't need acute care, and the hospitals geared up to make revenue on, on those expensive procedures, there's going to be a gap in there that's not going to be filled. Right. Um, and the other thing that, that I've seen happen with these private equity groups and things in, in big cities is they tend to be pretty careful to be provider agnostic in the hospital side. So when they can, they typically choose not to pick favorites in the hospital and play to all markets. And so that leaves the hospitals, if they haven't really sat down and figured out their strategy of delivery system, but also where they target their revenue and profitability, if they're still in the cost shifting mode, where we're going to get all these commercial patients and they're going to pay for Medicare, we're going to get all these inpatients to pay for outpatients, we're going to get all these outpatient MRIs and CTs to pay for aspirin. Right. That's not going to work. So they're going to have to think long and hard about what their model is, what their strategies are. I think there's need for for all of them, but if they're not careful in filling, you know, the their the right role, whatever that turns out to be, I think they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Because yeah, I think so too. I think the economic impact could be quite great. And you know, the, just to kind of finish up that conversation, as I was talking to you know, the president of that group, you know, we really came down to the conclusion that one, you know, you you need to think about evolving your primary care model, but you also have to look at the data and almost get out in front of it. Because if you're, if you wait too long to see what the trends are, you know, you're going to miss the boat and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be impacting everything. And and it's really the attribution that I think is going to be the impact there. So, I guess I'd like to switch topics just a little bit. You know, we've, we spent some time talking about what these impact of primary care would be on the health system. But as we're talking here, I can't help think that as a primary care physician, boy, the practice survival is a tough one, right? I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of these influences and, you know, it's, it's got to be real scary out there when you think about all these, this competition. I think, you know, the saving grace for some of the primary care physicians is if you develop a great relationship with your, with your patients and those within your practice, I think, you know, potentially you're going to be okay, but you can only manage what you can manage, right? 
what are your thoughts? You know, how, how does a primary care physician right now survive? Well, I think it's challenging. And I think you have to think about things that you never had to think about before. One of the things you brought up, which I think is sort of important from the get-go, is being strategic. And part of that sitting down and at least thinking ahead instead of just reacting is the fact that we've gotten to a point where, you know, at this point, your patients may love you, but there's a limited loyalty depending on payer models and other things. And so, you know, you sort of have to be there every day. You can't count on patients because they can be moved with with the switch of a health plan. So you sort of have to think ahead and be thoughtful. And then you also have to understand things that you didn't have to understand before or affiliate with people that do, which is, you know, your financials, your cost structure, your contracts, you, you have to be aware of that stuff. And again, I know a lot of docs would just put their heads in down and, and see patients, which is great, but somebody has to keep their eye on the environment, both financially and strategically, if you want to survive. Yeah. And, you know, I think, and we can certainly talk about this in more detail. It, it certainly is that, um, you know, that, that partnership or dyad model, right? Where, you know, you, you be able to kind of partner with a a strong business person that can help kind of guide it and really leverage the opportunities associated with primary care. But I think also too, making sure you're, you're clear on your weaknesses, right? And where do your vulnerable points? And I think understanding that and being able to come up with a plan to close the gap is, is going to be key and it's different in different markets. I don't think it's a one size fits all in, in, in any way. But I think if primary care physicians are going to, you know, not just survive, but thrive, they do have to think about all of these elements and, and probably come up with a plan to allow them to, you know, to, to increase their overall performance and so forth. Yeah, and I think that's right on. And I think they have to be um, flexible and be willing to change um, models if the situation dictates. And to your point, yes, surround yourself by experts, but I think it's really important that you understand enough so you're not totally delegating all your responsibilities to those experts. You have to understand those experts and understand what they're doing so that you can really make the right decisions and have the proper oversight. Things are more transparent now than they ever were. You have to recognize that your information's gonna be out there, both quality, patient experience, outcomes, it's really a different world. Patients are much more knowledgeable uh, in a good way and a bad way. They bring in one of the questions we've heard pa- doctors start asking patients, what do you understand your, understand about your disease from the internet? Just so you have a baseline to know where they are. Right. So, a lot harder. It is. And there's, there's a lot more information out there. And as we said, a lot more competition and a lot more influences. Well, George, you know, this is great. I appreciate it. I know this is something that is uh, that you are extremely passionate about. You know, we had talked for some time that, you know, you're, you're writing an article and a blog on this. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing it and should be coming out. I would imagine in the next couple of weeks. So those that are interested, certainly look at the lumina.com slash insights page, but George, before we conclude any final comments or recommendations or words of wisdoms for either health systems or the primary care physicians out there? I think the words of wisdom are just keep your head on a swivel, like we used to say, and and keep an eye on what's happening out there. I think as long as you put patients first, you'll be in great shape, but but you have to understand the environment that you're working in. 
And I am hopefully optimistic that we will get past some of this difficult times post COVID and burnout and all those things and move to a point where primary care physicians are back doing what they're supposed to do is taking great care of patients. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I am extremely optimistic that we're going to get to that point. So again, George, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I think just to to kind of summarize a few things, Dr. Maisel brought up some great points. I think, you know, one of the key things that we as, you know, as, as healthcare leaders and especially leaders of, of health systems and, and those that are employing the physicians, they really need to consider is how are you aligning your incentives? I think that's a big takeaway. And, and we continue to see that, right? So it's, it's the alignment of the reimbursement with, you know, maybe the physician compensation with the performance and the outcomes and, and what's occurring with our patients. I think that's a, that's a real big step. I think the second point that I appreciated hearing today was understanding the weaknesses and the vulnerability points relating to primary care. There's a lot of competition and the competition is continuing to grow. Competition from these uh, private equity groups that are investing in these other primary care medical groups, if you will, competition from commercial carriers, you know, uh, competition from you know, maybe some other non-traditional, more digital-based, remote-based primary care services. So I, I think as health system leaders, we really do need to look at that and think about as, you know, as we used to say a long time ago, thinking about what's the paradigm shift required in order to really accelerate primary care. And then I think the third piece that I, I would recommend and is really focusing this on the primary care physician themselves. And, you know, again, what is the primary care physician need to be successful? You know, it's tough. And as we've all known, you know, we hear all the time, there's a shortage of primary care physicians. So how do we, you know, manage the physician burnout? How do we, you know, focus on work-life balance? How do we give the right support to the primary care physician so you know they have access to these subject matter experts and not just survive but thrive i think that's really where we have to get to well i want to thank everyone for joining us today and listening in really appreciate it and another great episode of value based care insights until next time i'm daniel marino thank you we want to thank you for listening to Value-Based Care Insights Podcast by Lumina Health Partners. Lumina is your partner on a journey to value-based care and all the pivots and challenges our industry faces daily. To learn more about us, visit us on LuminaHP.com. If you found value in today's conversation, subscribe to us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify, and leave us feedback. Be sure to check out our show notes at LuminaHP.com insights. Join us again where we continue to take a deep dive into what lies ahead and invite conversations with some of our colleagues and industry thought leaders on new trends that are emerging and how we continue to navigate and thrive. Until then, have a great day and stay safe.